Finally, we're in the last section, the last point of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And as he wrote that word, I don't think Paul was coming to this place in this passage, finally, I'm here. So I don't want us to approach it that way. But I can't help but think that that I have been looking forward to this moment, to this passage for quite some time now, for several weeks as Paul came to this point in the passage, in, in this point in his letter, I really believe that he was saying, he was, he's summing things up. This is a, a word of transition, a word of summary. Finally, I've got one last thing to say to you, one last thing to teach you. Listen up. And in fact, that's a preacher's trick. You know, we expect you to zone in and out through the sermon, and we save stuff for the end. And so we'll say, finally, so that you know, okay, now, now I've got to pay attention because we're almost out. If he catches me sleeping now, I, it's going to look bad. Right, So that's what we do. That's what he's doing. He's, he's changing tone. He's changing ideas. And he's bringing into, into this transition this idea, finally. Well, I've been looking forward to this. Because in the last several weeks, really since the beginning of the year, we have been working through the last half of the letter of Ephesians. And every week I've come, I've come to you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, hoping to call you to the high call of the Christian life. I wanted you to feel the responsibility, the expectation that God has for His people. I wanted you to feel conviction from the Holy Spirit in places where you need to grow and where you need to strive and in places you need to repent. I wanted you to sense that conviction. I didn't want to place on you guilt. I didn't want you to feel like you had to measure up to me. I didn't want you to feel like that you had to had to fit in this group of people a certain way and do a certain thing to be accepted here. I wanted you to feel conviction from the Holy Spirit. I wanted you to own and, and hear the, the call that God has placed on us as his people. I wanted, you to, I wanted you to deal with that. But every week I came doing my dead level best in that call to remind you. To remind you that it's not our performance of these tasks and these instructions that make us acceptable to God. It's not our performance or how well we do or how well we measure up to the people sitting next to us or how well we measure up even to our neighbors or our, our co-workers or how good we look in our own eyes before the people around us in any way or even our own eyes in our imagination before God. It's not how we look. You know, I've tried to impress upon you that as we are called this to do this, this, this high call only comes after Paul has talked about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. But I know. I know because I'm just like you. I have the same struggles as you in many, in many cases. I, I fight similar battles just like you do. I know how heavy this sometimes feels. I know how heavy it feels to be a husband and be told that you're not loving your wife if you are not loving her like Christ loved the church. I know that that's heavy. Trust me, I know that's heavy. I know it's heavy to hear as parents that your responsibility is not just to be a friend to your child. In fact, it's first and foremost to be a disciplinarian to your child, to be someone who prepares them for the kingdom of God, to be someone who prepares them to receive God's blessings. I know that's heavy. I know it's heavy to be told that you are to submit to the brothers and sisters around you, that you are to give up your will for their good. I know that's heavy. 
And here's in my mind, I think, how in the world do we do this? How do we get there? How do we, how do we combine this idea of what Jesus Christ has done for us, what God the Father has done for us in the first half of the letter with now what he is expecting us to do? How do we combine these ideas? How do we tie these together? And as I looked forward to this passage, I knew this is where it happens. You see, this is where it all comes together because as Paul comes to this place and he says, finally, he's not just simply summarizing what he said over the last three chapters. He's saying, well, he's summarizing what he said from the very beginning of the letter. He's drawing it all to a close and he is calling you brothers and sisters with me along with all the saints that have gone before us, along with all the Christians in Springfield, along with all the Christians in Missouri, the United States, and around the world, he is calling us to join the rebellion for Jesus' fame. You see, the reality is, and this is not something we think about often, the reality is is that God, in his grace and by his mercy, because he loved us, back when we first rebelled and sinned against him, back before the foundations of the world even, he knew he knew that we would rebel. He knew that we would sin against him. And as I heard it prayed earlier, we would spit in his face and reject him. Man, he knew it. And in the moment that he provides the curse, that he lays the curse on those who rebelled, he provides them hope and promises one who would come, who would crush the head of the serpent. You see, God's gracious rebellion, that's how we presented the whole first half. His gracious rebellion against our sin saves us. And it calls us to join the rebellion for the fame of His Son. And that's what the whole second half of the chapter is about, living for His glory. You see, today, today we get to begin to see how it all breaks out, how we can actually become the people that God has called us to be, how we can actually not just recognize and know our identity, not just recognize and know theologically and doctrinally that we're saved, not just recognize and think about some future hope, but that we today, that we now from here on out to the moment that we go home, to, to, to the moment that we take grasp hold of that thing that God has promised us, our, our inheritance, our salvation, our presence in, in Him, our, our presence with Him. Until that moment when it all becomes a reality, the fact is we can stand. You see, that's what this passage is all about. It's unfortunate I can't get through all of it today. We're, we're really going to have to make this a two-parter. But... But let me encourage you. Let me encourage you. If you, have, if you have worked through and struggled with, how do I get this done? How do I be the parent God called me to be? How do I be the husband, the wife, the, the brother or sister in Christ? How do I walk in purity? How do I strive for unity? How do I do these things that he's called me to? Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters. Listen today. And make a point to listen to next week as well. These things go hand in hand. In fact, you kind of have a leg up on those that will be here next week that aren't here this week. Because we're going to set the foundation for what it is to join the rebellion, to be God's 
people to live victorious Christian lives. And I'm going to give you one point. We're going to break it out through the text in three different ways. He says, over this whole thing, I think that the reality of these three verses that Paul, to summarize for him, he says, we live victorious Christian lives when we dress for war and get in the fight. You see, you and I cannot be victorious Christians. We cannot live in victory. We cannot be the people we've been called to be when we are striving to build our own kingdom here on earth. We cannot be victorious Christians or people who strive to live in victory or who who see the power of God at work in us when we're really just working a nine-to-five, getting by and, and doing what we want to do. We cannot be victorious Christians when we avoid difficulty. Think about what we've been called to. Think about what we've dealt with all the way through this last half. Everything he's called us to is counter-cultural. Unity, peace among brothers and sisters, that is counter-cultural. Just think about it. Think about how people outside the church, outside of Christ, without any Holy Spirit or without any salvation, think about how they relate to one another. Think about it. You have two universes that, that, that revolve around themselves. They're, they have their own gravitational pools. And when they come close to one another, what begins to happen? Well, they only put up with one another so long as they're getting what they want. You see, we, we, that's what we do. That's, that's how we interact. That's how we engage. We're, we're selfish. Being unified and a people of peace, that's, that's countercultural. Being submissive to one another, actually thinking about someone else's needs before your own, that's countercultural. We even struggle with that in the church. We've owned that. We've dealt with that. All we're called to in Christianity is difficulty. It is going to be a fight, but avoiding that fight will not lead to victory. We will. We will be victorious Christians. We will live a victorious Christian life when we actually dress for war and engage the fight. You see, this is a call to charge. It's a call to get busy doing what we've been called to do. But not by our own power, not in our own strength, not standing all by ourselves. See, Paul shows us something much different. He says first, be strong in the Lord. Now, if I was sending you into war, if I was your general and I was sending you into war, and I thought, and I, I thought, well, you know, these people, they're, they're pretty good people. They'll, they'll get it figured out. They'll find guns. They'll find equipment. They'll find, they'll find all that they need. They'll, you know what? They may never have even shot a gun. They may never have even trained for war, but they'll be okay. Well, that'd be pretty irresponsible of me, right? What would that do for you? Go to war! Go fight! That'd be irresponsible. Paul comes to this place and he says, he gives us this passive command. He says, be strong in the Lord. Be this. Be strong in the Lord. But it's not strength of yours. It's not strength from within you. It's not strength that, that you can gather or that you can gain inside of yourself. Or you can't look into the depths of who you are. And be strong. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That philosophy has been failing people for generations. He's saying be strong in God's power. It's the immeasurable great power that Paul prayed for us in chapter 1. I don't know if you can think back. He prayed that we would know, that we would have intimate knowledge, that we'd have experiential knowledge of the immeasurable great 
power of God, the very power that raised Christ from the dead, that seated him on a throne, the very power that brought you up and seated you at his right hand, the very power that changed you from dead to alive, that power, that power, he says, be strong in it. Be strengthened by it. See, being strong in the Lord, let me just summarize what I think he's saying. Being strong in the Lord is simply trusting him. Not just in death, not just in that moment that we die. Not not saying, well, I trust that when I die, I'll go to heaven. God will save me. I, I think he's powerful enough for that. But trusting him every moment of your day. Learning to trust that when it's difficult, he's got you. Learning to trust that when life and the, and the circumstances that you're in are falling apart, that he is powerful enough. Learning to believe that even when, when you think you got it and all of a sudden you don't got it, he does. You see, it's learning to trust this every day. This doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen immediately. It's not like I can, you can say, be strong in the Lord, and all of a sudden you're the strongest person in the world. That your faith or your trust in Him is so 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 rich and so deep. It takes time. Consider His disciples. They've seen Jesus turn water to wine, heal the sick, the lame walked, the blind saw, the deaf heard. I mean, they saw some pretty amazing things, right? I mean, if we were there, we we look on that, and we think, man, I'd have no trouble believing in God's power. And that if I could see it, it'd be easy then, right? That's what we. I think that's what we think sometimes. But consider these disciples. After experiencing this, after walking with him and seeing what he'd done, they're out on a boat one night. Storm comes up. The wind and the waves are just about to capsize them, and they are freaking out. We are going to die. Where's Jesus? And he's sleeping. That, that says something right there, right? I mean, he's pretty confident. What is he doing sleeping? We're about to die. So here's the thing. I think this is funny, really, because they didn't just leave him asleep. They were going to die. In their mind, they're dead. They didn't just leave him asleep to die in peace. You join us in our misery. We're going to die. Right? Isn't that what we do? Wake up. We're we're about to die. You've got to be awake for this. We We can't die with you sleeping. Before he does a thing, he looks at them and he says, You of little faith. And I don't know, that stings a little bit because I can personalize it pretty easy. Because suddenly I realize it wouldn't be so easy to believe in this power because I'm so used to believing in my own. Boy, they believed that night. They, they saw something new that night, didn't they? They were in awe. It doesn't end there. There's story after story after story. Mary and Martha, they were close to Jesus. He'd been in their house. They loved Jesus. They, in fact, they, they knew Jesus so well that when their brother Lazarus got sick, he was the one they sent for. They didn't call the doctor. They didn't call their... They, they, they didn't do it. They, they said, hey, Jesus, get Jesus. We need him here. Come. We, we know you can help him. That's what they knew about Jesus. In fact, they had so much trust in Jesus' power that when he approached and Martha saw him, she ran out and said, because she believed in his power, she ran out and said, if you had not been here, he would not be dead. 
That's pretty amazing faith. You could have healed him. But see, she just didn't know all he was capable of yet, did she? She just didn't see how powerful he was. And Mary, when Mary comes, you know, she's the one that in Scripture, she's, you know, she gets the good light because she's the good sister who actually knelt before Jesus and listened to him instead of being in the, in the kitchen serving and getting dinner ready. She's the good sister. You'd think that when she comes out, Jesus, I know. I know, Jesus, you can do this. I've heard you teaching. I've heard your words. I know what's going on. You can go. You can get him. You can get him out of that grave, and you can make him alive. I know it. No, it's not what she said. Jesus, if you had just been here, my brother would be alive. Oh, what faith. They just didn't know. You see, part of learning to trust in the Lord is letting yourself be in places where you have to trust in the Lord and finding yourself in circumstances and learning to trust in the Lord. We, 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 we live in a place where we can control so much of our lives. We, we, can, we can build bank accounts that keep us safe for months and months and months. If I lose my job, I'm okay because i got six months before I need another job. I can't give to the Lord's work. What happens if I lose my job? Now, I'm not saying be stupid with your money and just go throwing it around. I'm just saying be wise. And quit resting in your own power. Well, I can't, I can't witness to my friends. They don't even want Jesus. I might lose my friends. I, I might all of a sudden lose lost people to talk to about Jesus. So I better not witness to him. Well, first off, that defeats the whole purpose anyway. Because if you're not going to talk to him about Jesus, then why do you have them? Because they make you feel good. And in the end, did you want Jesus before you trusted him? Probably not. But somebody told you, didn't they? You see, his power is bigger than we could even imagine. His power made something from nothing. His power holds together the universe. I'm not just talking about this planet, but I'm talking about the stuff we can't see, that we can't comprehend. Light travels for millions and millions of light years before it ever gets here. We can't even imagine or comprehend what's on the other side of that star. But God holds it together by his power. You see, that's the power. And in this moment, Paul is saying, be strong in the Lord. And all that simply means is learn to trust Him more than you trust yourself. Today, start today. Determining, I'm going to do the things He's called me to do and trust that He's going to show up. You know what's going to happen? He's going to show up. And He's going to work. And fruit's going to come from it. Be strong in the Lord. Finally, that's where we're at. Don't don't go out and make a way for yourself. Don't go out and think that you've got a better plan than he does. Don't go out and, and, and think that you can do something by yourself. You can't be okay with that. Own it. Thank God I am incompetent. And I am powerless to affect change. Thank you, Father, for giving me the ability to confess that. Man, I tell you what, if I came here and preached on a Sunday and some of the things I say... Man, if I came here and said that, I was doing it in my own power. I'm telling you what. 
I'm <laughs> my wife is laughing at me. I don't know, don't know why. I mean, I say some pretty stupid things. I have said some pretty embarrassing things. If you ever sit and talk with me outside of this moment, I mean, if you ever if you ever have a conversation, well, you'll find out that dude is weird. But I can get up here and I can be confident and I can be bold and I can be courageous and I can make claims that I know have power because our Lord has power. You see, brothers and sisters, you have that same power available to you. Be strong in the Lord. Trust in Him more than you trust in yourself. And then He says, in His strength, put on his armor. Now we're going to deal with the armor more next week. We're going to break that out. The truth is I could actually preach on this for another seven or eight weeks. We're going to do it in one. But it's not just about protecting yourself. I want you to see here that he's sending you out not just with strength, but he's actually strengthening you to put on his armor. He's giving you armor. He's giving you protection. He's giving you what you need. He is equipping and preparing you for the fight. Again, it's, it's not about us just learning. to, to, to um, it, it's, Let me say it this way. It is about us learning to depend on God. It, it, it's just a repetitive way to, to approach it. Let me say it like this. And I think this summarizes what he's saying. Putting on the armor of God is reminding yourself daily of what he's done in the gospel. Now you'll, you, you'll hear it next week. You'll hear about the belt of truth, the, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. You'll, you'll hear about that. But the reality is, is everything that he's going to bring to us in the armor is a presentation and a reality because of the gospel. You're righteous because of Jesus' work. You have a truth because Jesus has come and made it known. You have salvation, not because you saved yourself, but because you have a Savior. You see, the reality is is that what He's calling us to is to remind ourselves daily of who we are in the gospel. Remind ourselves daily of what God has said about us in the gospel. Let me just remind you from this letter what He said. He said, before the foundations of the world, you were chosen for redemption and forgiveness, not because of what you did, not because of what you would do, or not because of who he thought you would be, because of his sovereign choice, he chose you before the foundation of the world. Because of the gospel, you are no longer a sinner, but you are a saint. See, you're no longer a loser, you're no longer incompetent, you're no longer powerless. You're his child, you're his, you're his righteous one, you're his clean one, you're his equipped one, you're his empowered one, that's who you are. You don't have to be some super Christian squared to carry the name saint. God gave you that name. He said that about you. He says that to you. You're no longer outcasts. You are citizens of his kingdom. You have legal standing. You have legal right. You are justified. You you can go and you can... Well, I don't know if there's going to be votes since it's a theocracy or a... a uh, because it's kingdom he rules. But you can go and you can be a part of what's going on in this kingdom. You can show up and not be kicked out at night because you don't belong. You can go and live among him and his, or with him and among his people. Because of the gospel, you're no longer dead, but you're alive. You see, not only does the gospel tell us about who we are, it tells us about who we were. 
What does the gospel say about who we were? Well, the first part of Ephesians tells us we were dead in our sins. We were enslaved to Satan. We were enslaved to our flesh. We were enslaved to the world. We were dead. And he breathed life into us. He made us alive. You see, the gospel tells us that you're no longer illegitimate, but you are adopted. It's not like you're saying I'm his son. He's saying you're my son. If, if some kid runs up to you in the mall and says, that's my dad or that's my mom, that doesn't mean Jack. But if you walk up to that kid and you say, that's my child, it's a whole other perspective going on, right? You see, there's authority. Because of the gospel, you're not just an illegitimate person. You're an adopted child of the Most High God. Because of the gospel, you're no longer without hope, but you have an eternal inheritance. You have something to look forward to. You get to get Him. You get to be with Him. You get to live with Him forever. You get to sing His praises. You get to enjoy work again. You get to see the redeemed and renewed and restored creation. You get to walk in a land that's never dark because the sun will always be there and He will always shine. See, you get to be in a place where you will never feel pain. The tears will be gone. We won't even need tears of joy then because we'll know how to express it so fully. You see, the pain and the death will rule no more. It will be done. That's our inheritance. And it's what he's done in the gospel. And here's the problem is sometimes we lose sight of those things. Sometimes we get into the midst of the struggle. We get into the midst of the fight. And and sometimes we just, man, I just don't want to deal with this. I'm going to go do something else that's easier. You know, I, I like playing video games. I don't really, but hey, they would be easier, right? I just watch some movies and televisions and escape. I'll get drunk so I don't have to think about it. I don't know. There's a number of ways that we escape. I'm just going to stay at work because it's easier to deal with my work than deal with my life right now. What do we do? What do you do? You see, the reality is is that putting on the armor is just simply reminding yourself of what God has said about you. He tells us who we were, and He tells us who He's made us in Jesus Christ. And we need to remember that every day. If we're going to be victorious in this fight, we've got to remember that we don't have to attain it, but that it's been given to us. If we're going to be victorious in this fight, we have to remember that we don't have to measure up, but we have been measured up. We have been raised up. You see, He's done it. He did it. Preaching and reminding ourselves of the gospel every day. But here's the thing. I think sometimes we we try to do this too late. The whole perspective of these two ideas is that we're doing it regularly, that we're learning to trust Him, that we're putting on the armor, that, that maybe we're even sleeping in the armor. You know, it's like we're going to bed ready for war because you never know when the enemy's going to attack. There's no guarantee that you get to sleep at night without some attack. There's no guarantee that something's not going to happen when you're least expecting it, that you're not ready for. So be ready, he's saying. Put on the armor. Have it on. Be ready. Reminding yourself the gospel every day as you spend time in in the Word. Don't just read the Word for your way to act, but read the Word reminding yourself who you are, and this is why I act. Reminding yourself of what He's done, what He says about who you were and what He says about who you are. 
do these things. He says, be strong in the Lord and put on the full armor that you may stand. There's a whole positive perspective in this phrase. It's not like you might stand, you could stand, that you can stand. And Paul tells us why we need the army. He tells us, he, he shows us this, this is it. I want you to know why it's so important. I want you to know because I want you to be able to live victoriously. I don't want you crushed. I don't want you beaten. I don't want you vanquished. I want you to be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Put on the armor now. Keep the armor on when you go home. Keep the armor on when you climb into bed. And you keep the armor on when you stand in the shower. You you you, you speak to your family. When you uh, go to your job. When you sit in a restaurant. When you're watching TV. When you're sitting and relaxing. Whatever you're doing, you keep the armor on. That you can stand. And see, the idea behind standing, we need to deal with this. We need to understand it. You see, Paul is not calling us just to, to cease movement. The whole half... The whole second half of the letter of Ephesians has been about walk, a walk. He says it's a walk in the light, a walk in purity, a walk, a walk in uh, wisdom. He's, he's defined it that way over and over. No longer walk as the Gentiles do. He's said it over and over. So he's not coming to this place and now all of a sudden changing ideas. And, and I, you've had all this forward movement. You've had all this motion. Now I just want you to stand. I just don't want you to, to move any further. That's not what he's saying. He's saying as you walk, when the attack comes, I don't want you to have to give up any ground. You see, we should be progressing in our Christian life. There's a drastic difference between the apostles that night on the boat and the day that the Spirit fell on them. Even before the Spirit fell, there was a drastic difference in who those disciples were. You see, that night on the boat, they're afraid. They, they don't know his power. They don't understand it. They're not really trusting all that he can do. They're not understanding how, how powerful he is, and they're, and they're missing it. And they, he shows them, and he goes a little further, and he shows them, and they come to this point where he's hanging on the cross, and this man that they thought that was the Messiah is hanging there dying, and they are hiding and afraid. Most of them didn't even watch it happen because they were afraid. His body gets put in the ground and they hide in fear. You know what changed? He stood there in the middle of them all of a sudden and he said, My peace be on you. They knew. They knew that their Lord was Messiah when he stood there resurrected in his body. And he stayed with them teaching them, training them, preparing them. And then he ascended into heaven and he said, there's going to come a time. You're going to be filled with the Spirit and you are going to be my witnesses. And that day on Pentecost, they weren't hiding and afraid. They were gathered in a room praying together. 120 of them at this point. It's probably different even than the day that they were gathered in that house hiding and afraid. they had met the risen Lord. And it encouraged them and emboldened them to stand. 
You see how important it is that we put on this armor, that we trust in His power. That we remind ourselves of what He's done for us. You see, as the Spirit fell on them, that's only only brought it further because then they saw truth and understood truth in in incomprehensible ways and then were empowered in ways that nobody could have been prepared for. And they stood and they began to proclaim the goodness and the glories of God. And they were saying, oh, they're drunk. They're just drunk. They've been drinking early. Peter stands before them and says, no, these men aren't drunk like you say. Listen to what I have to tell you. And he proclaims this powerful gospel message, the very gospel that that will enable you and empower you and equip you and protect you in the fight. He proclaimed it. And that day, 3,000 people came to believe. You see, this is a powerful gospel. It will protect you. It will provide for you. It will equip you. It will sustain you for the fight. It will enable you to stand firm. Standing firm is really just simply another summary idea. Standing firm is persevering in the life that we have been called to live in Christ. You see, we progress just like the apostles progress. We should be progressing. I should believe more in Jesus today than I did a year ago or five years ago or 15 years ago. And I can tell you I do. I hope you do too. I hope you do too. Because in that progression, there's going to come fights. There's going to come attacks. And there's going to come days of evil that seemingly could overwhelm you. You are going to need the gospel. You're going to need its power to sustain so that you can stand firm, so that you don't lose ground. You see, we should be moving forward, never giving up an inch. Moving forward, never giving up an inch. Moving forward, never giving up an inch. And we can. Brothers and sisters, we can be these people God called us to be. Because He's given us His power, His incomparably great power. And He's girded us up in the gospel. You see, we can be the people God calls us to be because in Christ we have direct access to the power of God. We have direct access to it. It's no longer some distant dream. You have it. It's yours. You can use it. In fact, it's like, I mean, here's the idea. It's like going into the desert and not bringing a a, a water bottle with you or a canteen at least. But the beauty of this is you're not just carrying a canteen or a camelback even. You're, you're, You're carrying a water hose that's connected to a source that never runs dry. Everywhere you go, you got water. You can affect change by His power. You affect change in your life. You can affect change in the world around you by His power. And we have that access through the gospel. We can be the people God calls us to be because in Christ that is who we already are. You're already good fathers and mothers, good wives and good husbands. You're already good Christians. You are already saints. You are already righteous. You are already these things. Positionally, when he looks at you, he smiles. He sees you and you make him happy because of the blood of Christ. But practically, 
We have a fight on our hands. We can do this. We can do it because that's who we are. It's the root of our identity. We can be the people that God calls us to be because what God has already done for us and in us is more powerful than what the enemy can ever bring against us. There is nothing that he can do to you. There is no temptation. There is no struggle. There is no problem in this world that can undo what God has done. I know, man, I know. For some of us, this has been a tough year. And I know that you feel, I know that you felt the battle. I know that you felt the blows. I know that you are under the weight and the struggles of life. I know. It's war. The Christian life is a call to war. And the ironic thing here is, is that when we changed teams, when we were brought from one team to the other, we got on the team of the guy who actually was being good to his enemies. We shouldn't expect anything less. The enemy doesn't care about us, doesn't have any concern for us. He just wants to rob God of his glory. But that enemy has already been defeated. He's going to go out swinging and kicking and screaming. But there is not a thing in the world that he can do to undo what has already been done. You are a child of God because he says you're his child. You are a saint because he called you righteous. You are forgiven because he forgave you. You have an inheritance because he gave it to you. You have hope. You can have joy. You can have peace. You can have all of these things because they are a product of walking with him. And no matter how hard the enemy tries, brothers and sisters, there is nothing, absolutely nothing, when we are walking, when we are walking in the strength of the Lord, bearing his armor, that, the, that, that, that our enemy can do. And one day, one day, we won't need the armor anymore. One day, we can hang on for this, I think. See, there's going to be a day when God flicks Satan off the face of the earth. You see that? Just flicks him, just like a, a, a bug. Sends him into eternal condemnation with all who are like him. And he brings you into his presence. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter my rest. We can be these victorious Christians today because of all he's already done for us. But there will be a day when the celebration will be on. The victory will be won. And all the pain and all the trials and all the struggles will be gone. We'll get there bit by bit, by the power of God, by the promise and provision of his gospel. And until we do, we can stand. Let's pray. God, you're good. We know, we know, 
We know, we know, we know, God. We know in our heads that these things are true. We know, we know, we know (laughs) in our heads that you are powerful. We know that you can work mighty, mighty things. God, in these moments, as, as, we, as we come off of a place where we're carrying the weight of what we're supposed to be doing and recognizing our failures, will, will you remind us, God, that the victory is ours? Would you strengthen us for the fight ahead? It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.